Hey, what is going on, everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters. There is nothing so disturbing to one's well-being and judgment as to see a friend get rich. <laughs> my name is Thomas, <laughs> and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, are you rich yet? No. Good. Okay, I'm fine. Good to go. <laughs> what are you drinking? I am drinking a grim, super-going, uh, it's like a dry-hopped ale, orange zest, it's Ooh. it's all right. It's it's not like uh, it's not, not one of my faves. Not amazing. What does dry hopped mean? I keep hearing that term. I I don't know. Maybe they like potpourri like dries out and then they. <laughs> I, I have no. <laughs> so idea. we have no clue. <laughs> we should ask Matt. Actually, I bet you Matt's site has like the term on it somewhere. Mm. I don't know. He has like all of the beers in the world now on there. So it's pretty cool. Oh, wait, here we go. Dry hopping your beer like a pro. It's literally on the front page. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it means, but I'll look at his article later on. Actually, a pretty nice design site, i got to say. It's like it's nice and, and just minimalist. All right, how much is he paying you? Five beers. <laughs> Five beers. You're fucking cheap. <laughs> Actually, if I want free beer, all I have to do is go to his house because he's sure. always got beer on tap. And he's just like, come over and drink my beer so I can make a new beer. Uh, though it does cost me a lot of gas to get to Boulder because it's like a 45-minute drive, I think. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's pretty annoying. Like, Boulder is cool to go visit, but it's just it takes a while to get there, at least from where I am in Denver. So I noticed that you are drinking a beer. I am. Yes. Uh, of course, you know, we totally overshot our scheduling and spent the entire noon hour talking about business crap mm. when we sh- were supposed to be recording. So now it's past one. As per usual. Uh, well, I actually finished it. So <laughs> I guess it's gone. But it was a woodchuck cider. Mm. Oh, I love I, I love woodchuck cider. So it's, you know, good. I actually got this pumpkin spice cider mm. for Halloween. And it was it was decent, but I gotta say, like I don't know, Woodchuck's still just the classic. It's good. Hmm. One of my favorites. Uh, I think my favorite pumpkiny beer thing is the Travelers, though. The Travelers, Travelers is pumpkin. good. Yeah. So good. And then we're getting close to winter now, so we're gonna have the Travelers Winter come back, Ooh, and that's one of my I favorite beers. It's real good. It's like I forget what they call it, but it's it's like in a bluish bottle or a blue label. And it's got like coriander in it and some other stuff. Mm. It's just, it's real good. It's one of those beers that uh, I'm glad it's seasonal because it does get old after a while. But during that window of time when it's out, it's, it's super tasty. I'm a big fan. Anyway, today we are talking about bubbles <laughs> and when they pop. I've been waiting to do that all day. I don't even know if it came through <laughs> the mic very well. Like, wait, when you did it, I was like, oh my God, he planned this. <laughs> I totally did. Absolutely planned it. Yes. Um, but we did an episode on cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin mm. a few weeks ago. And Andrew thinks they're a bubble. Uh, I'm I not do. sure. And then, of course, we talked to Jay, uh, Day David, Day David, Jay David Stein last week. We did our retirement decumulation episode. And... He does not. He think mentioned Bitcoin's that. A bubble. Well, he said Bitcoin isn't a bubble because we don't have a uh, a sane value to peg it to. Right. So there's no way to tell has this asset inflated beyond its it real a value because we don't know approach. what its real value is. Mm. Which is an interesting. Yeah, it's a very interesting way to think about it. Um, and I I guess I didn't really think about it that way before. 
the one thing that I was doing, and we're going to talk about what exactly bubbles are, some historical bubbles, all kinds of cool stuff. The one thing I was thinking about is um, I was reading up on bubbles and there were these signs that you can look out for to see if is something a bubble and when is it going to pop. And they were saying like when uh, people who really don't know anything about investments start telling you that you should buy it, like that's a good sign of okay. a bubble. <laughs> so, so I absolutely agree. And, and I got this and I pulled like a lot of stuff from Wikipedia cause they had like just some awesome shit. Yeah. We had a um, lot of good stuff. Oh, so, and I do want to mention before yeah. we get into it, people should look at the show notes for this episode. Oh, uh, it's going to be wicked. Cause they're, Two important graphs yes. that you can look at that really illustrate bubbles and if you're going to be in one, like when you need to get out, so, um, all kinds of cool stuff. So we've we've been talking for a while and it's like kind of an ongoing conversation of Bitcoin and this and how we think of just different investments and it's like all off the air stuff. And uh, I've been kind of singing this song for a while and I feel like you proposed this episode and I feel like it's... Um, I've just been waiting so long, but I needed someone, I needed you to suggest it. Um, you don't need permission, Andrew. Th- thank you, Thomas. And, and so here's, here's the thing. And, and we talked to us before we did the episode is, uh, I don't know shit. You don't know shit. Or you maybe know just a little bit more shit than what I don't know. But we certainly cannot predict the future. And it was like, we wanted to talk about this, perhaps giving our opinions, but being pretty clear that we don't know what the fuck's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so the goal is to kind of, I, I think like you can perhaps, it's not like there have always been people who have predicted bubbles, right? And there are people who just like say yeah. shit. And there are people who've just, they're like essentially historians and they've just seen this play out before and they, they, they're understanding the signs. And so the goal is to kind of give that information to you or at least wet your palate and then you yeah. can make appropriate decisions. So the definition that I looked up or found when I was reading about these um, comes from Peter Kujis, I think, mm. from Stanford. And he said a bubble is basically where investors buy an asset, not for its fundamental value, but because they plan to resell at a higher price to the next investor. Uh, now, one thing that I took issue with with this definition is isn't that what a lot of people do with just investments every day? Mm. Like throughout history, the whole point is buy low, sell high. Well, it's like the whole thing. That's why they have that quote. Uh, bulls make money. Bulls make money. Bears make money. Pigs get slaughtered. There are people who are always think it's going to go up and you could certainly make money that way. Yeah. You could think everything's going to go down and make money. But if you're just in it to make money, uh, that's how you're the people the bulls and bears make money off of. Yeah. But, when, when you get into a bubble, it's people buying the asset way beyond its true value. Yeah. So that's why you have little mini bubbles where like Snapchat is overvalued and then it pops or something like that. Mm. And then you have bigger bubbles and we've got a few through history that we can uh, bring up. I'm sure people can think of a few like the 2008 housing crisis was absolutely a bubble. Mm. And a lot of that was due to just basically fraud in the market. Mm. You know, putting these completely crappy mortgages into these CDOs and then, you know, the, the ratings agencies saying they're good. And then all of a sudden, you know, eventually it comes to a head and it all comes crumbling down. But bubbles go back 
far through history, and one of the most famous ones. Wait, let's is... let's start at 2008 and let's work back oh, to that. One. Okay, sure, yeah. So 2008, basically mm-hmm. the housing market was the bubble, right? Because there was all this like easy credit out there. People would say like, here you can have a loan for this ridiculous five hundred thousand dollar house, even 0% though you down. work at Walmart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and the no reason payments they did this, for the first two years or whatever. Yeah. You know, and the reason they did this is because they could just package these mortgages up into this, what was it called? A uh, mortgage-backed security or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they sell those and they make a ton of money off of those. And they're rated highly because it's the housing market. The housing and market never goes down. Wait, wait, because, okay, so you're glossing over a few things. So we're gonna, I want to, like, we're going to talk about it. And at the end, okay. I want to, like, highlight, like, some of these points, but one of the things I think is really interesting is that the people who are selling, who are getting all these loans, they're like, um, like countrywide, for example, they would go and, and help everyone mortgage everything with zero down, no payments for two years, whatever, because they held that loan for a hot second before they sold it to someone else. So their yeah. incentives were to churn them as fast as possible. Whereas yeah. the people buying them, their incentive was to not. They- Weren't they selling them to like institutional investors and like mm-hmm. people that ran pensions and shit like that? So so it's like multiple, yes. And so there's multiple things at play here. It was like people chasing ever higher returns. These are the investors who are buying this shit. There's mm-hmm. uh, misaligned incentives. So you have countrywide essentially generating shit and then peddling it to investors. And then you have like this easy loose credit where people are just, you know, a waitress will have like five homes and you yeah. know, uh, worth like three million dollars total, it just doesn't make sense, right? Yep. And and for a, a good explanation of this crisis in general, one of my favorite movies, uh, The Big Short, yes, is worth a watch. It's it's actually a fascinating movie in and of itself. Like they mm-hmm. they lay it out very well. It it's actually one of my favorite movies now. Mm. Like top five, I think. I love that movie. You know, and and actually, so I don't want this to only be negative because I actually think there is like a great benefit to bubbles. Yeah, and, actually, that, I was going to agree with that. So and like maybe as we go through, we'll talk about it. But I think the benefit of the housing crisis is that we created all of these houses that, you know, at the time were expensive, but have since crashed in value. And so uh, now like there's more places to live and there's generally more infrastructure out there. And even on a bigger scale than that, the academic paper I was reading, which came from, I think it was ETH Zurich. Uh, is and Where is Zurich? I can't remember. Is that in so, Switzerland? Yeah, yeah. I'm almost So yeah. I think it's in Switzerland. So they were saying that bubbles are actually what kind of drives the process of technological advancement because there's always a technological innovation. Mm. So Tesla builds a better electric car or SpaceX builds um, a, a vastly cheaper rocket or some other company comes up with some cool new thing uh, like, you know, drones or something like that. Mm. And the paper was saying generally these companies that are they're fast, they're hungry, they're innovative, they're usually cash poor because mm. it's just some maverick entrepreneur who's willing to think differently. And funding it, yeah. And, you know, they might be funding it, but a lot of times to get these products to market, to get them out of out of the infancy stage – uh, institutional investors and big companies that have a, an economic engine in place that already generate a lot of cash, they invest. Mm-hmm. And they invest because they're like, I want to get in early on that. That's going to blow up. And this is what causes the bubble to inflate. 
We inflate the new technology, the new innovation to something past what it's really worth because everyone wants to get in at the early stages. Everyone thinks that they're getting in at the early stages. There's this herd mentality. And then eventually there's a correction where, you know, eventually there's not enough new people coming in and the bubble pops and the true value is realized. So the price moves down to where it should be. Mm. Now there's people who always lose out, but as the paper was saying, that gets us to the next stage. And then from there, there's another innovation that comes up and over time, this cycle keeps repeating. They're like steps. And it's one of the, it's one of the engines that drives the pro- uh, progress of civilization, really. You know, because those things are created with an enormous amount of money and all these forward-thinking investors, and perhaps prices were really high, but then it pops. Maybe the company that originally created, created like goes bankrupt or something, but then yeah. uh, that thing that they brought into the market is cheap and easily available, uh, perhaps for the masses. Um, yeah. And, and here's so, a good example, like dot-com bubble. Yes. You know, the internet was in its infancy in the 1990s. You know, ARPANET turned into the internet in, I think, 1984. And then you, know, you had academics and, and the government and the military using it in the late 80s. And then eventually when we got to the 90s, people were on Usenet and you had these crabby browsers. But it was still very much in its infancy. Mm. And then you got all these companies come in. The one you can probably remember is Amazon. But there was drugstore.com and, I don't know, beatbop.com and every word you could think of.com. Yeah. And they were getting all this money because people were just like, oh, the internet's going to be the new paradigm and everything is going to be great and it's all going to be online. Which totally crashes. But but the internet was an next big thing. Then, but the it was. It just the exuberance. People were investing in, you know, I don't know. Pet, only pet food and cat litter.com and they yeah. had like pool tables. They're hanging out, but they had no viable business. At the, was, yeah, at the time, if you had an idea, basically, if you just said, I had an idea and I have the domain name, and it's okay, on the internet. here's $40 million because yeah. you're going to be huge. You know, people want to get in at the ground level. They want to be part of the next rocket ship going to the moon. Well, that all crashed. And Silicon Valley and San Francisco went into a bit of a recession after that. All the investment money dried up. But Amazon survived. Mm. Several of the big players survived. and Who were fiscally responsible. They were fiscally responsible, but you also established the internet in general. The internet got a big bump. So and now, now we can you've all get got, cheap broadband because everyone laid yeah. the cables and blah, blah, blah. Now you've got iPhones and you can order Amazon Prime and you probably have drones coming in mm. in the near future. So it's like that is part of the technological progress. But there were a lot of people caught in the bubble. And the bubble was essentially speculation, right? Mm-hmm. People assuming that they were going to make money in the future. Uh, not necessarily based on the value. Um, Yeah. And this gets into something that's called the greater fool theory. Hmm. So the greater fool theory basically states that people will invest in something or they'll buy something, not always because they have this rational belief that what what they're buying is useful. Um, They could think that it's totally useless. Hmm. But if they have a belief that somebody in the future will buy it from them at a higher price, essentially a greater fool, then they know they can make money off of that. So this is basically what drives all bubbles. Right. If you're just like, I'm buying Bitcoin because I Look think the price is going to be $10,000 in three months. Well, then you think, okay, that I can sell it for $10,000. There's a greater fool out there. If you don't, If you don't have a strong belief that Bitcoin is going to become the currency of the future or the, the next store of value like gold, if you literally just think that there's a temporary rise, 
then you're operating in the greater fool theory. But now that doesn't make you irrational, it, it's, but it does mean that somebody in that chain is going to be wrong and there won't be a greater fool for them to sell to. But, but I think, I think there's one catch to add to that is so, so yes, you're looking for the greater fool, but you had said like, well, if you know, it's not that you believe in the future of Bitcoin as a currency, you know, you're trying to make money. And I, I, I always go back to this like analogy, you know, you have two Honda civics, one is $20,000 and perhaps they retail for 30. I don't know. I don't yeah. know what they cost. Um, but, uh, then, then there's another one that's worth a hundred thousand dollars. And I guess the question is, what is the value of a Honda Civic? And, you know, you can say, believe in Bitcoin and I do, or in cryptocurrency and I do, but it is, does the price represent its, its actual value? And that's, yeah. that's something that we can't answer. Yeah. With, with Bitcoin in particular, we have no idea mm. because we don't, yeah, no, I guess. It is so interesting that this is a common vein of discussion in this bubble thing. Well, it's um, it's the common vein because I th- I don't know about you, but Bitcoin is what made me start looking at bubbles. Because mm. I hang out on the Bitcoin subreddit. You know, I check out a couple of times a day. And I would say 80% of the people there are, they're totally in, you could say they're drinking the Kool-Aid or you could say that they're on the right path or that they're the people that are, in the minority of people who are right, they're all to the moon. We're going to get Lambos. Just hodl your coins. And then there's always the minority opposition in there who are just like, man, maybe we are in a bubble. You know, like I think at some point this month as we're recording this in November, there's going to be an episode of the Big Bang Theory on Bitcoin. And some people in that Reddit are just thinking, when you have a dying TV show watched by middle-aged people who just want to make fun of nerds Mm. and that's talking about Bitcoin, you've reached the stage where, okay, yeah, it's a bubble. Mm. And actually people check out the show notes for this, but there's a graph that you can look at here that shows the four stages or phases of a bubble. You have the stealth phase where the quote unquote smart money gets in Mm. the venture capitalists, angel investors, that kind of stuff. You have the awareness phase. And to be clear, it's, it'll be almost impossible in most cases for us on the mics, anyone listening, we're not going to hear about it. Well, yeah, we'll never have the opportunities to be the smart money. It's just, we're not the ones getting pitched, right? We're not Peter Thiel with Y Combinator or is that, is that Peter Thiel's? Yeah. Well, okay. I don't know if he's Y Combinator, but he's, it's Peter something, right? Well, Peter Thiel is a super rich dude who's invested in, he was part of, um, PayPal. It's part of the PayPal, part of the PayPal mafia. I thought that Peter Thiel was who didn't he found my combinator? Uh, no, well, Google's really smart. Paul Graham. Yes, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I get those two guys confused. Paul I Graham really don't know is why. brilliant, you know, but so yeah, we're, we're not Paul Graham. We don't have, uh, Y combinator, but Paul Graham is the smart money. He's, mm-hmm. you know, one of the people who would represent the smart money. They get in, they're the people who initially get these things off of the ground. Uh, maybe not in the case of Bitcoin, but in, in a lot of cases, then you have the institutional investors. So your big ass banks that they're they not wealthy clients. They're, they're, too, they're too risk averse to fund something that isn't proven. But once the smart money has put in enough money for it to get a takeoff, now they're like, ooh, we can make some money here. Mm. And some of them believe in it. Some of them are just like, we're just going to pump it up a little bit and then sell it off. You know, So yeah. you get your first sell off, which you can see on the graph. And this is the awareness phase. So at that point, 
the institutional investors have pumped it up enough so it moves into but, what's called the mania phase. Wait, wait, but but you're skipping okay. you're skipping this uh that it on the graph it says the bear trap. The bear trap. I guess I'm so skipping that. There are people who perennially think that like this is the next big thing. It's going up and they're they're bulls and they're people and and maybe I've been more in the bear category lately that think like this is the thing. Like it's all coming down. Like it's it's just it's doesn't all make gonna sense. die. And so yeah. the bear trap is the part where there is the dip and so they they're so like vindicated or, or they think it's going further so they yeah. don't go in. That's why it's a trap because it's actually at like one percent of what the value yeah. will potentially be. So, so I fell into a little bit of a bear trap yesterday. So the bear Maybe trap a is a little bit of mm. So I, I had a I had a stock. Am I allowed to say? Yeah, I thought I was talking what, about me myself, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, Say whatever you want. We're, no David one got should... me like confused. Yeah, I did. don't take this as investment advice because I'm just a dude in his bedroom who's definitely not an investment advisor. As we say, but, do your own damn research. Yeah, do your own damn research. We should have an acronym for that. Uh, I bought Overstock. It's called beer. And literally, so you could tell how like my active investing is a small percentage of my overall investing. Hmm. One day I Googled what companies are related to cryptocurrency. And Overstock was listed. And I was like, okay, let's just try putting a little bit into Overstock. And I think this was like when they were at 35 a share or something like that. Mm. And then they shot up like crazy. And uh, yes, so they shot up to like 46 a few days ago. And they went down to 40. And at this time, like you were kind of convincing me, maybe Bitcoin is a bubble. And because Overstock is heavily involved in crypto, I was like, okay, anything that happens to Bitcoin is probably going to be reflected in Overstock. And Overstock's retail business isn't doing so hot. So maybe it's just all this mania about crypto that's pumping out their stock price. Mm. So I waited for it to, to get back from 40. It went up to 49 yesterday and I sold it. Now, part of the reason I sold it is because I realized I was spending a lot of time looking at the price and this is not good for my mental health. Maybe I should just keep money in Betterment because I don't know if this is actually a good thing for me. Uh, and then this morning it was up to 55. So I was like, damn it. You know, I could have made like an extra six dollars per share off of that. And I'm not too like disappointed about it. Right, it's right. it is what it is. It's always gonna happen. But it's that's an example of a bear trap. I was like, okay, forty nine is probably the top, and at some point it's gonna go down. Now it, it might still go down. It might still crash. Right. It may week low was thirteen dollars. Hmm. So who knows? There was some fund out there that was like, our new price target is eighty nine dollars for overstock. Wouldn't that be nice? But, but all... just as likely, it could crash down to 10. Yeah. Who knows? Because this crypto thing, who knows what's going to None of the happen. analysts can predict the future either. And, yeah, and if they actually saying... knew the future, the banks would not let them publish it to us because the banks exactly. would profit. Yeah. So. There's always an analyst going to be saying, you know, Bitcoin 10,000. There's another analyst going to be saying, Bitcoin's crashing tomorrow. You can't listen to analysts. Anyway, so who the, bear the hell trap is... the fact that they were going to cancel the fork early? You yes, know? that's but true. They did that. And Look, that affected the market. So bear trap is like this first dip. And, yes. And if you're looking at, at this graph, which you should go to the show notes and see, like we're talking about a really baby dip off of like a not that meaningful gain so far. It's like, you know, it's very in, in, since we're talking about Bitcoin and I want to talk about it for the whole episode, but like it's, this, it's this would be Bitcoin in like 2009 or something. Yeah. Or like what, what um, I remember in 2013, I think. 
it Maybe shot it was up two hundred dollars a coin, mm, mm. and then everyone was freaking out, and then it went down to one hundred and fifty. This is and what I, were, this is what I meant. There were suicide hotline links on Reddit and stuff. So Bitcoin you know, was so two hundred. There's a bear trap. Halved in value. All the bears are like, "Told you so. I knew it." You know, um, a lot of people lost a lot of money, but we're talking about a hundred dollars and two hundred dollars, and today it's like what sixty five hundred dollars. So yep, and yesterday but, it was seventy five hundred dollars. Exactly. So, so literally a thousand dollar dip in a day. That makes that fifty dollar dip back in 2013 looked like nothing but it was crazy because back in 2013 everyone was used to bitcoin being like three dollars a coin or something like that you know or 2010 it was like less than a dollar and people were just i I can't fathom this weird magic internet money being worth 200 dollars a coin it's insane you know and now now people would say if if it was 200 dollars a coin like it's dead so (laughs) if we take the the track of bitcoin you know this this whole crash happens and uh everyone's Hearing about the crash, the writing about the crash, people are starting to find out about Bitcoin, who may not have otherwise, because it's in some more mainstream news. You yeah. know, I'm sure there are more companies are founded based on it around then, more investors. You know, uh, I don't know where on the graph uh, we and us talking about it falls, but there's quite a lot of media attention. Yeah, so th- this is the mania phase, mm. uh, and the mania phase starts with media attention. And then, as the graph says, moves up to enthusiasm and then greed. Everyone's Maybe there are subreddits dedicated to, to just determining what the future value of Bitcoin will be in 2050. Yep. Like, that's insane. Yeah. And you move up to delusions about it. And so what I found interesting is the very top of the bubble, according to this graph, is what they've labeled new paradigm, huh. where everyone's just like, this is the newest thing that's going to change the world. So this is where I am at with Bitcoin. It's just, I feel like, the new paradigm thing happened at least in the smaller circles before mm. the media attention. So I guess we, I don't know where we are there. It could be that we're just at media attention. It could be that this isn't even a bubble. Who knows? Past performance does not indicate future performance, all that stuff. I think we're definitely in the greed phase or past the greed phase. It, it does sound like, yeah. I mean, I saw a picture of Floyd Mayweather. He put it on his Instagram and he's like, I'm doing an ICO or something like that. Mike Tyson like, okay. has a Bitcoin startup. Bitcoin yeah. ATMs in Las Vegas. Like, yeah. I'm when sorry. Mike Tyson's doing Bitcoin ATMs. Have and you when seen you the tattoo Mayweather. on his face? The guy doesn't <laughs> make good decisions. I'm just saying. <laughs> so you got questions at this point. It's, it's no longer just a bunch of geeks on the internet talking about hashing algorithms. Mm. It's uh, Floyd Mayweather doing ICOs and it's uh, the you know, Big Bang Theory doing a Bitcoin episode and it's every news program you can think of is at least mentioning it sometimes. So I would say like, I remember even a month ago, I think when we did the Bitcoin episode, I remember talking to you about how I listened to that podcast episode where they went to this marketing technology conference and asked for a show of hands and most people there had no Bitcoin. So that is a misleading thing that makes you think, oh, well, okay, it's still not in the mainstream yet. Mm. But now that I'm paying attention, I'm thinking, no, it's in the mainstream. Maybe a lot of people haven't bought it yet, mm. which could be good, but it has at least entered the general awareness. The thing is, like, uh, so when you have it at $100 and it has to go to $200, you double your money, right? And it's easier than going from 200 to 400 you know, 400, 800, and right now it's at like 6,000 something. So if you're looking back at people doubling their money, it has to go to $12,000 per Bitcoin share for you to, for you to achieve what people did 
before. So it's like yeah. even more unrealistic, you know, looking forward to achieve what happened back. And this is like, there's like these few points in time and this is the bear trap where I would say more, like far more people than, I mean, I'm sorry, the bull trap or far more people than mm. get snared than the bear trap because there's yes. nothing more powerful than greed. Exactly. Well, I mean, fear is pretty powerful as well. That's true. But like, greed and fear are like the most powerful things. But yeah, so uh, on this chart, you get to the new paradigm. That is the end of the mania phase. So then you have and that's like your the first big dip. And a lot of times what happens is you have one big dip and then you have a recovery of a little bit. It because won't get back to the total top, but it will, it will recover a bit. And, and people will say, oh, it's returning to normal. Well, one They sec. think that's what normal is. So if, say, Bitcoin was at 6,000, right, or 6,500, whatever it's at, and you're like, oh, my God, this is awesome, and I, I need to be a part of it, and obviously it's doing well. If it only went to 5,500 or 4,000, then, then I could get in and feel like I got, like, a good value. I'm just waiting for the dip. And so the this bear trap is essentially when everyone is taking that dip bait. Yes. Yeah. Or you mean the bull trap? I'm sorry, bull trap. I keep getting it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So then you have a return to quote unquote normal. So a lot of times people think, say Bitcoin was at 7,500 like it was yesterday, mm. dips down to 6,500 today, and then shoots back up to 7,000 tomorrow. People might be tempted to say, okay, that is Bitcoin's normal. So we're good now. Right. Like the correction uh, happened. Yeah, they think that's the correction. But then a lot of times in classic bubble scenarios, after that one little recovery, then it goes into free fall. People start to panic. You come to the fear, capitulation stage. Everyone's just you know, rushing to shed the shares before they're worthless. Mm. And then the people who are, left, who are left in it after the bubbles totally popped, they're like at the point of total you know, low price. It's the worst part ever. And then it might return to the actual mean, the actual And that average. like whole despair part where it's the bottom, that's like the buy low, sell high, like that's where it lives. And so, you know, obviously you're you're just the brilliant investor if you buy at the low point. Um and I guess that's the the benefit of having some cash sitting on the side. So you don't know what will happen, but eventually something will happen. And so that is anyways, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's like the general uh, flow of a bubble mm. as it blows up and then it bursts and comes back down. And a lot of this happens because it's herd mentality. Um, and I'm trying to figure out, I can't try to remember the book that this guy wrote. His name was Chancellor. Um, was it Devil Take the Hindmost? Was that what it was? Yeah, Devil Take the Hindmost, A History of Financial Speculation by Edward Chancellor. This is a book about bubbles and financial speculation that you can look up if you want to. But he basically said in financial markets, one might say they are prepared to ignore bad news because they still hunger after the immediate profits of speculation. A description of the speculators in William Fowler's circle during the 1860s provides an illustration of this behavior. They were engaged, wrote Fowler, in bolstering each other up, not for money, for we thought ourselves impregnable in that respect, but by argument in favor of another rise. We knew we were wrong, but tried to convince ourselves that we were right. So this is the really uh, easy trap to fall into when you get into a bubble because everyone who gets into it, especially if you get into it fairly late on the rise up, mm. 
really wants to convince themselves that they are not in it too late to realize some of the same fantastic gains that were gotten by the smart money, by the people right. who got in early. So they go over to their subreddits and their little communities and Twitter, and they just say, it's going to the moon. Don't worry. This dip right now is just people with a weak hand selling off things because of this tiny little news event. And all you got to do is wait for them to get out, and then the price is going to jump back up. And that might happen. Maybe. Who knows? Mm. But in many situations in history, that is actually a sign of the bubble starting to pop. But people don't want to believe it. It's the greed and the herd mentality. So they all just con- convince each other that uh, what they basically at a gut level know to be incorrect is actually correct. So I, w- I want to take a step back and and talk about um, the stock market crash of 1929. Uh, okay. th- this is like directly preceding the Great Depression. So, yep. you know, there are many causes for it and it wasn't necessarily because the stock market crashed, but it was something that was going to happen that was exacerbated by the stock market crash, mm. um, the, the Great Depression. And uh, there's this guy who I'm kind of like one of his biggest fanboys of. His name is Ray Dalio. Um, and you, and if like you listen to him, read his stuff, you'll see like a lot of influence of Listen Money Matters from him back to like pictures we made based on his video of the economic machine, blah, 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 blah. I, I think he's just a brilliant dude. Um, and so he has recently been running the news circuit and he is comparing. And I, I just want to say also, as, uh, before I, I tell this, like I, I was uh, fraught in this episode because I don't want to instill fear because I don't um, know anything. And I don't yeah, necessarily we don't know it's a bubble. Yeah, and I don't necessarily think that it's crashing tomorrow or even in two or three years. And if you listen to the episode before this, someone far smarter than me, David Stein, doesn't believe that. So whatever. For um, Bitcoin or for the stock market? Just in general. Like a, oh, a, okay. a crash. So um in the Great Depression, right, or basically Ray Dalio draws a lot of uh correlations between roughly nineteen thirty six, thirty seven and now. Um, the, the wealth gap was extreme, populism was on the rise, interest rates were low, and all these things incentivize stuff differently. Um, but uh, I, I thought you were going to say something. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, so basically uh, the, the cause of the Great Depression, um, you know, maybe these things all came into play, but um, people were valuing this different sectors like steel and stuff far, far higher than they were worth, um, which is like PE ratio and stuff like that. So it was uh, exuberance. Yeah. And then we had our crash. Exactly. Like yeah. the worst one ever. Yeah. And it was the great rebalancing of where it used to be essentially as disparate the, the wealth gap as it is now. It kind of fix itself because it's just not a sustainable paradigm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and there was one other we wanted to talk about. Mm. Uh, this one was like sillier, but it's, it's really famous in the history of bubbles. So back in the 1600s, I think this was in, was it in Holland or Denmark or something like that? I forgot to write that part down. Mm. <laughs> 
but essentially this I think this professor brought over uh Dutch's Holland, right? Yeah, it's the I always forget. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Okay. Or ne- Netherlands. See, they have like four names, don't they? That's what it is. Yeah, they're like the Netherlands, but it's also Holland, but they're the Dutch. And the, the people were Dutch. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Maybe somebody who's from Holland stuff, can ex- yeah. can explain why they have like three different names. But I think it was a professor who came over with these tulip bulbs and someone had stolen one. Mm. And some of them had this virus that would give them these really crazy different colorations. And because the Dutch society was so unequal, um, people were looking for just basically status symbols. And this bubble arose around stupid tulip bulbs to the point where you could buy a tulip bulb for the cost of a nice house in Amsterdam. They were saying it was 10 times more than the annual salary of a skilled craft worker. One yeah. one tulip bulb. For a tulip bulb. Mm. So it just goes to show you like how powerful this effects of uh, a bubble can be. These herd mentality and greed effects. Mm. Because clearly a tulip bubble is or a tulip bulb is a flower that's going to die pretty soon after you plant it. Uh it's there's very little inherent value in that, but nonetheless, people are willing to pay the cost of a house for it. So, we we both been doing like a lot of research on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and, and I actually am starting to loathe the fact that we're like beating on it in this episode, which wasn't <laughs> the original goal. But one of the things when because I, I was trying to convince myself why it is. Uh, a good investment. And I really wanted to, and I, I didn't, but I really wanted to invest in it. Um, and one of the things I found uh, on Reddit, just kind of like on a lot of blogs on the internet, are people um, explaining what the future value will be. And they're like, well, um, gold is like a $16 trillion asset class or some insane amount of trillions of dollars. And I'm like, well, if only 20% of the value of gold moves into Bitcoin, that would peg Bitcoin prices at blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know, $50,000 or some insanely high number, you know? And they're like, well, based on the current trend of moving of capital and this and that. And so, and everyone has their own wacky ways of determining what the the value in like 2020, 2050 will be of Bitcoin, right? Um, Yeah. And that, that plays into one of, the one, two, three, four, four reason, main reasons for, for bubbles. And this is extrapolation. It's essentially mm-hmm. people projecting historical data into the future. And so that's like me saying like every year I got a 5% raise and a 20% bonus at work. And so that's going to happen next year. And in 10 years from now, I'm just going to keep it up. And I'm going to be making a million dollars a year or blah, blah, blah. But nothing yeah. ever really works like that whether it's business or investments Mm. or i do want to bring up something maybe i can find the source at some point but i remember reading an article recently about how a lot of people will get to a certain level of income in their lives but the number of people who will maintain that level of income over say five years or ten years is way lower especially when you get up to like the two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year range Mm. because People have kids or they slow down or whatever. So they might have one year where they finally reach that goal of 250k a year. And they think, 
well, that's what I'm going to make forever. So I can spend the way I'm spending and just keep going. And that's often not the case. And so whether it's like the growth of Bitcoin or Amazon stock price or, you know, the demand for like pork rinds or whatever, like extrapolating into the future and these these prediction predictions are like generally dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's that. We had the greater fool theory, which mm. we explained. We had herd behavior, which we also explained. Mm. And the last one is what you called moral hazard. Yeah. So this is, so I, there's like one light example. It's, it's not like a full example. And that's kind of this countrywide thing where, um, they didn't really give a shit if these mortgages that they were creating were mm. worthless because their incentive was to make them and sell them. So, at the so there's end, like no skin in the game with relation to the actual value of the asset. Exactly. And, um, do you, do you watch, uh, John Oliver at all? Yeah. So his, did you see his last episode? The one on flooding? Yes. Or the one on economic development? And the one on flooding. Yeah. Okay. So I, I immediately saw moral hazard in, um, the, the national flood insurance program. Yeah. Cause people have really no incentive to move away from the coast, even so, if their house has been like destroyed 18 times. Okay, br break it down for them. You could probably do better than I can. So basically, if I recall this correctly, flood insurance is like the one type of insurance that the government pretty much pays for. It subsidizes so it, and it I think, incentivizes. I think you can still buy flood insurance, but it's, it's the one type of insurance where the government is actually paying back the insurance company. In Hoboken, when, we have to buy they, flood insurance. And when you buy flood insurance, it is backed by government money. But if, say, yeah. statewide or Geico, whomever, sells it to you, they own none of the risk, but they make money selling it to you. And then when yep. there's a claim due to flooding, they make money essentially handling the paperwork of it. But the government- the government's paying for it. The government funds everything. So essentially yeah. statewide doesn't give a shit. And the more policies they sell, and then the more of those policies that fail that they have to fulfill is directly correlated to their profit. And I think they were saying there are a lot of these houses that maybe they cost $100,000, but they've been flooded so many times that $400,000 of repairs has been put into them. Mm. You know, at that point, that house is a money pit. Destroy it. Move somewhere else. That's the logical thing to do. Now, they did point out that there are a lot of families who literally can't afford yes. to move because- who would buy their house if it's in a place that's kind their of life savings constantly there, flooded. stuck. So they're stuck. But it did also say a lot of these people or a lot of the claims for flood insurance, uh, go to second homes. So it's rich mm -hmm. people who have second homes near the coast, constantly getting flooded and the government's basically paying for it. But and that kind of pissed me off because yes. I was like, you know what? There's a portion of my tax money that's going to fixing rich people's houses that are stupidly built on the coast, even though they know it's in a stupid spot. And there was a part in the episode where they pointed out that it's stupid and someone just said, well, that's what flood insurance is for. Um, so basically dude, my money's being flushed out into the ocean for that, no reason. That is exactly where I wanted to go with it is you have these two guys and, and what was the name of their show? It was like by, by the beach, or by something. the beach, by yeah. the beach. And there are these two guys and you know, I don't know, may, maybe you like the show and maybe it's an interesting show, but he shows this clip of these guys and 
I'm going to say they just look like super douchebags because they're basically fleecing the shit out of people. Um, and so they have this conversation on a boat and they're driving down this boat looking at these houses that are like literally 80% into the ocean. Like they're on stilts. I mean, like you would have to be, I think you'd have to be kind They're on of, platforms, yeah. Yeah, like, I don't know. One one gust of wind and a, and a like minor storm will hurt <laughs> these places. And so they're talking about, well, what if these homes get damaged by floods or hurricanes? And the guy's like, uh, flood insurance. Like, it's not a problem. And, and Yeah, when, he said that's what insurance is for. As yeah. if, like, you're buying it with the expectation that you'll have to use the insurance. And you know... You know there's something wrong when you expect to have to use insurance. I mean, maybe I'm not – I don't know. I pay for health insurance because I want to be able to use it in case I get hurt. Hmm. But I'm not expecting to go break my leg tomorrow. And, you know, I do some things that are maybe a little risky. I skateboard. I do parkour and stuff. But when I'm dropping in, I don't – like fail to wear a helmet and go, I'm not wearing a helmet because I have health insurance. No, I wear a helmet and I wear knee pads because I am rationally mitigating my chances of getting hurt doing a thing that I like doing. And when you're at a point where you don't care about mitigating the chance of a failure because you are relying on the, on the insurance, it's no longer serving its purpose. It's mm. supposed to be a safeguard, not uh, something that you think you're going to use. Right, right. And that's why you there's know. like, I guess in all these TV shows, you know, someone get takes out uh, life insurance and then they like jump off a bridge or something and it, you know, life insurance doesn't cover suicide because that could be essentially a poor actor, mm. you know? Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So yeah, those are, those are the four kind of main drivers of a bubble. And what we wanted to do to end this episode is to give you guys some maybe signs you can look for. For identifying bubbles, these are things that have been pointed out by smarter people than us. And I you think, had a list here. Yeah, so I think this kind of summarizes essentially the conversation. And uh, when you look at like the, I think we talked about like four, four main, yeah, four main bubbles that happened in the past. You're going to find multiple of these nine apply to each of them. And yeah. so like any one doesn't mean a bubble, but they kind of like conspire together you know and i think uh yeah so i had some written down as well mm. and i think mine are mainly different than yours what's well, or maybe read them both then okay cool so i had just four and this these were all uh told by william bernstein to somebody else during an interview and what he said is number one everyone around you is talking about stocks or real estate or whatever the fad is mm-hmm. so and you should really start worrying when the people talking about getting rich in certain areas of the market don't have a background in finance. Hmm. Uh, I had a friend in college who he was always talking about the new hot stock, man. Mazda's going to go to the moon or whatever it was. And I'd always ask him, are you invested in it? He's like, no, but I guarantee if you put money in it, it's going to go to uh, the moon. And I'm like, okay, yeah. so you're just one of those guys who's just, you hear about the latest fad on 4chan or Reddit or whatever it is. And then you just go parroting it around because, you know, the greed's got you. Number two. But wait, wait, wait. Before you go to number two, I think this underscores the importance of knowing the value of something. And so when we're talking about like, you know, stocks or businesses versus Bitcoin and how uh, David Stein said that, well, Bitcoin's on a bubble because there's no like clear valuation, whether it's like 
Amazon or Google stock or a rental property or like investing in Thomas's business or something, there, there is some way that you can value it and determine if it will be successful. Uh, you know, like yeah. a, a rental property. That, should that's ha- tough. Well, dude, you know? so if, if you have like a rule that you are only going to buy rental properties that will provide an X return, like as of the yeah. prices that you bought it now and the rent that it is now, you know, then you have a methodology at least. Whereas I hear rental properties are hot, home prices are going up, everything's going up, and you're buying it detached from uh, Yeah. Reality. There are definitely formulas you can follow. You've got price to earnings ratio, you have market cap, all that kind of stuff. I do want to point out though that that's, that isn't always applicable. No. Uh, and sometimes, you know, risk is worth it, such as, you know, you, if you invested in SpaceX, you know, you can't invest in SpaceX because they're yeah. private, but had you in, invested in SpaceX like eight years ago, you know, you wouldn't have seen clear indicators of value. Mm. You basically have to go off of faith in Elon Musk and the people he's hired and their ability to do things. But all the pundits would have told you, oh, these people can't do what they say they're going to do. So and, and it, that- it is tough to always know the exact value of something. Sometimes there is like just an element of just a hunch that it's going to be very valuable in the future. On the valuation end, so there's like PE ratio with stocks, which is like a general indicator. Um, and they are all across the board generally high right now. Um, Apple is at 19, right? And they're like the the biggest company. They're like worth $900 billion, $896 billion at this moment. Blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, whatever. Um, super profitable, super successful company. And then you have another company who whose founder is the richest man in the world at this moment, um, Amazon. And they are a very successful company. And, you know, I, I think that they're going to continue to do well. But their P.E. ratio is 284. And that is simply because Bezos takes virtually 100% of profits and funnels it back into the business where Apple shows a profit. And so it's like, in a sense, the gaming of an indicator. not necessar- The indicator doesn't necessarily determine the value. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's that one. Um, I, is Jeff Bezos, is he actually number one now? I know he like he was, was temporarily and then he dipped down to number two again. And I'm, I'm like very confident that he will be number one. The, quite the soon. other one is Bill Gates and it's, honestly, it's Bill Gates. Yeah. yeah. And he, Bill Gates is not heavily tied to, um, Microsoft anymore in terms of his investments. So yeah, his investments are not. Yeah, exactly. Though I think that there's a lot of people who say that like actually Putin is the richest man in the world. He yes. Just, I, I, he just hasn't, he doesn't like publicize it. Well, cause no one knows reasons. what he owns, which is basically yeah. everything probably. Pretty much. Yeah. So it's, it's likely that he's actually richer than everyone, but so there's, there's that element of it. Um, number two, when people begin quitting their jobs to day trade or become a mortgage broker. Oh, well that, that's a very specific one. <laughs> <laughs> number three, when someone exhibits skepticism about the prospects for stocks and people don't just disagree with them, but they do so vehemently and tell them they're an idiot for not understanding things. Mm. And they have horse blinders on. Number four, when you start seeing extreme predictions, the example Bernstein gives is how the best-selling investment book in 1999 was Dow 36,000. Mm. You know, and you do see people saying like, Bitcoin's going to $100,000 a coin, stuff like that. So, you know, maybe. You should be scared. And- yeah, so there's... 
there's those four. And I think those four are represented here and we'll kind of like Okay, maybe they through. just were worded differently. It's fine. Yeah. Like we'll, we'll blast through them. Um so one is unusual changes in a single measure or relationships among measures. So um there was a housing bubble of 2000, uh housing prices were high relative to income, right? So yeah. normal ki- people can't afford to buy these houses. And it was almost like the greater fool theory. People were literally just flipping homes, making stupid amounts of money. Um, and perhaps yeah. also to that, yeah. And then secondly, you have an elevated usage of debt. Mm-hmm. So people are leveraged up to their eyeballs or they're getting homes for zero down, all that kind of stuff. Right. Which is just another indicator of a lot of greed in the market. People just really trying to ramp up so they can take advantage of this meteoric rise as much as they can. Uh, you have higher risk lending and borrowing behavior, which is uh, pretty relative to the or pretty related thing to the second one. People like subprime borrowers getting five hundred thousand dollar houses when they're a waitress. You know, if your brother is an asshole and no one should lend him money, and people are lending him money, you should be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> there's a problem there. Yeah, <laughs> maybe there's someone's brother out there who's such an asshole. He's like the bubble predicting brother. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> When he gets money, run. When he gets credit card offers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, rationalizing borrowing, lending, and purchase decisions based on expected future price increases rather yeah, rather than the ability of the borrower to repay. So I, I, there was there were lines in the, the Big Short about that. I remember when they uh, – when Steve Carell's character, I can't remember his name, Mark Baum, he sends his guys to Florida to look at this housing development and they ride in the car – with one of the realtors and she's just driving down the road, pointing out these houses. I sold them that house for $250,000 last year. And now it's worth $500,000. Those people sold their first house at a $300,000 profit. And now they're in a $750,000. And then they're just asking like, Oh, so why are they all trying to sell right now? And they can't. And she's just saying, Oh, it's just a little bump in the road. Mm. It's just a little lull. So all the price increase decision-making. Uh, number five, rationalizing asset prices by increasingly weaker arguments, such as this time it's different or housing prices only go up. This is the way it's always been done. <laughs> that kind of stuff. You're not actually bringing in a technical analysis. You're just basically doing wishful thinking. Uh, number six, a high presence of marketing or media coverage related to the asset. Everyone's so that's the one thing that starts it. worrying me about Bitcoin. Mm. I start hearing about it on the Big Bang Theory. Number seven, incentives that place the consequences of bad behavior by one economic actor upon another, such as the origination of mortgages to those with limited ability to repay because the mortgage could be sold or securitized, moving the consequences from the originator to the investor. So when you have a basically countrywide fucking Goldman Sachs Mm. packages up a mortgage, but then they sell it to some uh, Japanese pension bank. Now they're the suckers that get to deal with it when it goes into default. The hot potato. So there's the moral hazard there Mm. number eight international trade imbalances resulting in an excess of savings over investments increasing the volatility of capital flow among countries like the flow of savings from asia to the u.s was one of the drivers of the 2000s housing bubble again that was like the example the japanese pension bank Mm. buying up all these mortgage securities in the u.s uh and there you go you know and there's a lot of countries Mm. that are actually trying to prevent international investors from buying uh property in their city. Vancouver is a prime example. They're getting like Mm. so many speculators from Asia and Europe that people who live in Vancouver came and afford to live there because 
Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. And lastly, a lower interest rate environment, which encourages lending and borrowing. And interestingly, uh, Switzerland has a negative interest rate. So if you have your money in a Swiss bank account, uh, you owe them money for the privilege. What? So, well, hey, if you want to hide your money in Swiss bank accounts. It, it just means that clearly they have so much money that they don't want anymore. You know, it's almost yeah. costly, which makes you wonder the rates that they are printing money. Yeah. So there you have it. I don't know, 50 minutes worth on bubbles. Mm. So hopefully at this point you kind of know a little bit about the history, some of the um, exceptional examples of bubbles, and you have a little bit of an idea of how to maybe spot the trends in the future. And I think that's a thing. It's not about predicting the bubble. Because you you will never be able to, I will never be able to. I think it's like having your glasses kind of colored with some of these things so that you can determine what doesn't make sense. Because you know what? Bitcoin can come and bottom out at zero. And I think it was like $120 billion in like its market cap. And that won't mean anything to the global economy. Like there won't be a recession uh, or any like... There probably won't even be many jobs lost if Bitcoin goes to zero, but that doesn't mean that you can't see, and also not to say that it's a bubble, but you you could use these indicators to determine if like, I don't know, Amazon is a good investment or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so hopefully you found that useful. Once again, the show notes for this episode are going to be extra useful because you can actually see those graphs. We didn't really walk through the second graph, but I think it's a it's also a good thing to look at. Mm. Points out the point of maximum financial risk and also the point of maximum financial opportunity. There are lines, there are bubbles, there's colors. These these there pictures, are. they're good. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think they're very good illustrators, and they may even do a better job of crystallizing this in your mind than just listening to two guys try to ramble about it mm. for an hour. Yes. So <laughs> check out our show notes. ListenMoneyMatters.com/show. And you can find our Bubbles episode. You can also, there. if you're listening in the podcast app, like tap our faces. At, yeah. And well, it'll pull the show notes. Whatever brings up the and, show notes yeah. in your app. I don't know. Do you listen to the, do you just use the regular podcast app? Yeah. I'm like Mr. Default there. That works. Yeah. What I use, use Pocket Cast. Uh, Pocket Casts. So I have to swipe Do they the right. pull in like rich, like show notes, like images and stuff and. Let me find out. I can tell you that right now. We don't do rich show notes on my show. We just do like a list of links and a link to the actual show notes. I just feel like you have to be but, a, a podcast related to money to really have that richness. Otherwise, <laughs> uh, <in laughs> oh, it can't notes. be rich. Uh, Let's see. If I go over here. Saying. Yes, I can see the images in the show notes. Badass. So that's actually pretty cool. Mm. And then all the links work and everything. So basically the whole blog post is in my podcast app which is pretty nice. So yeah, I guess that's actually the easiest way to look at our show notes. Uh, if you want to check out our site though, we also have a pretty sweet resources page with financial management apps, books that we recommend, things that you can use to improve your life, grow your brain, do all kinds of cool stuff. And that's at listenmoneymatters.com slash resources, not resources, toolbox, slash toolbox, minds slash resources. Now we get it confused. Yeah, listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. Check it out. And thanks, as always, for hanging out with us. Hopefully you learned something useful today, and we will see you in next week's episode. Later, man. Later, dude.
please tell your friends about this show. 